The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I say almost every week, I'm also the newsletter writer for Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, uh, provides um, a partnership uh, with Roger Wiegand, uh, who publishes a very excellent newsletter on the futures markets uh, called Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. And we do have a one-time introductory offer to uh, those of you who may want to try any or all of those letters. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718 457 1426 718 457-1426, or go to our website at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, to learn more about these publications and uh, this special offer. We'd just like to remind you again that Chen Lin, in particular, has had a phenomenal track record. Uh, one of his accounts that he manages, and one that we track because it's so easy to keep track of the returns on that one, is a Roth IRA that he has managed to parlay $5,400 in 2003 to over a million dollars right now. So Chen has had an excellent track record, not just with that account, but many others that he manages for himself and his family. And he is kind enough to pass along some of that information to you. Chen will be with me in just a few minutes. He has some excellent, uh, very interesting ideas. What we try to bring to you here on this show is not what you're going to hear on CNBC, all that warmed over pablum that you hear every week, the same old, same old, yes, buy stocks, but Chen has some unique ideas. He didn't take that $5,400 into a million dollars by buying what CNBC tells him to buy. He does his own thinking, and he is sharing that with people in his newsletter and also on his show. Uh, And as I say, he will have some ideas in just a few minutes uh, to share with you. 
Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show and for telling your friends about it as well. We are really, really pleased to see our numbers have grown again this last month that we've uh, tracked it through August. Uh, we are the number one um, show on the business channel by quite a margin, and so that's because you are listening to this show, I think uh, rightfully so, because we have lots of good guests, lots of very interesting people to share with you. Uh, of course, we want to thank our corporate sponsors for making this uh, financially viable. Uh, you can talk all you want. You can spend time, but you got to put food on the table. And we are very thankful to our sponsors for the first hour of this show, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, American Bonanza, Millrock Resources, and Palangio Exploration as well. Uh, today's main guest is Andre Julian. He is a senior market strategist at OpVest Wealth Management. And the topic of our discussion will be, among other things, but the main topic, the one I want to focus on, is gold a new currency to replace the dollar? And this seems to be an extremely timely topic, in my view, given the currency wars that are heating up. Some of the most, I think, uh, I think we're facing one of the greatest changes, potentially, uh, since 1971, when Richard Nixon took us off the gold, uh, off the international gold standard in 1971. That worked a long time, very well for the United States. We could print endless amounts of dollars. The rest of the world would accept those dollars. And we could just print money and, and take the goods from the rest of the world as they, as they produce them. However, it seems to me that that game is nearing an end. And as it draws to an end, I think we're going to see some major changes taking place. And I really do believe the gold price, rising as it is, to the levels it is now over $1,300, uh, is probably just the start, but what it is doing is sending a signal that all is not well with the status quo. Uh, we are also going to be talking to Amir Adnani. He is the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. If there is another uh, promising metal, I think, in the future, it is uranium. Uh, uranium has not been be behaving that well of late. Uh, I mean, it's been sort of boring compared to most commodities. But we're going to talk to Amir Adnani. Uh, with his, he's going to tell us about Uranium Energy Corporation. It figures to become the next uranium producer in the United States. Very exciting company. He'll be with us. Um, and then we're going to be talking uh, to Jeff Deist as well. After we finish with uh, Andre Julian in the second hour, Andre will be with us uh, till about a quarter after 4 uh, Eastern time. And we're going to be talking to Jeff Deist now as we are approaching the elections. We're going to ask Jeff if he thinks there could be a sea change in the uh, legislature that could really make a difference or not. Uh, Jeff is the chief of staff uh, for Ron Paul, and we're going to ask him about how his boss is doing, what his plans are for the future as well. And then also, uh, after we talk to Jeff Dice, I'll be talking to Jeffrey uh, or to Gregory Beischer. He is the president and CEO of Millrock Resources, a very exciting company that is a project generator uh, company with some very uh, potentially, I think, world-class discoveries in uh, Alaska for gold and in Arizona for copper. So um, before we get to, uh, well, then I guess now we're really, really ready to bring on Chen. Um, so Chen, um, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times again. Thank you, Jay. Well, it's really, uh, really good to have you here, uh, Chen. Um, always want to ask you about, uh, it, it never, I never know where to start with you because there's so many things to talk about, but let's go to, let's go to China now. One of the things that's really, really 
seems to be the hottest topic in my mind. The one of the most important things going on is this currency war. And the United States would like to see China revalue its currency upward. China is saying, well, not so fast. We've got our own domestic issues. We've got to keep the economy going. We have to keep exporting. We want to keep political stability in our country. What do you think? How, do you, how is this going to come out? Is China going to continue to, uh, to defy the United States, or, or how do you think it's going to come out? Well, I think probably China's uh, currency will gradually appreciate, um, not as much as the United States uh, or Congress or government would like to see, but probably like three to five percent a year for you know for the near term. So long term is harder to see. Um, basically, right now is we discuss this uh, offline that uh, there's a lot of hot money in the China's Chinese currency. I don't know how much derivative has been put in, but Oh, the Wall Street, you can see the Goldman has a big investment, CIBC, and many other investments. So uh, there's a report I read, there's an estimate over $2 trillion in the Chinese currency just trying to, uh, you know, to lift, uh, to, to, to make money out of this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so basically, if Chinese uh, currency appreciates, well, say, 20%, like the Congress want to see, that's uh, $400 billion in profit and bonuses. For those uh, speculators, for the so, speculators, we might be talking about the likes of Goldman Sachs, some of the big guys, right? Exactly. They have so much in this, and then you know they're just waiting to collect their bonus. So that that's I think that that's one of the things um, for for if the Chinese government point of view, if they allow this to happen, and then they will invite more sharks coming, and then to to make the currency very volatile from from yeah. So that I think that that's that's one of the key and. You know, from competitively, I read an article. I mean, in my newsletter before. So, if currency appreciate like twenty percent, it really doesn't help uh, the trade balance much because Chinese labor has still very very cheap. About a dollar an hour, it increased by twenty percent. It's like twenty cents, you know, increase. Right. So. Still, yeah. very, very big gap. With well, one interesting theory that I had, uh, I, that I saw mentioned here, and I just let you to comment on it briefly because I do want to get to a, a stock pick or two of yours. But one of the comments that I heard or read about this morning is that the United States uh, and Ben Bernanke will start QE2, that is quantitative easing, the second phase, and that this one will be much larger than the first. Whereas the first one was an emergency situation, this one is one to try to drive liquidity into the Chinese market to inflate their prices to get their wages wages to rise so that we will be more competitive. Uh, do you think that's, does that sound realistic to you? It's possible, but the wage gap is still huge. Yeah. You're talking about 20, 30 percent of the right. wage gap. So, so it's got to, ha- there's got to be a lot of that, then. There has to be a lot of inflation, a lot of wage inflation in China before we even become close to being, before the U.S. becomes close to being competitive with China, right, on the, on the well, wage front. Probably, probably takes a lot of time, too. Maybe it takes, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to take five to ten years. So to, to okay, okay, Chan, I want to sh- uh, switch gears here briefly because one of your mo- most spectacular trades over the last number of years was with a company called Farmer Mac. And you were telling me before we went online that you see Farmer Mac as a very interesting proposition, a very interesting buy. Could you tell our listeners briefly about Farmer Mac and why you like it now? Yes, I- I've been in and out of stock. I- I- last year I made a lot of money on that stock and I got out. And then the stock was at, went to $24 uh, early this year, and then the Greek crisis came, and the stock now down to $13. Okay, uh, the cut almost cut in half. And it, what it does is uh, lending money to agriculture, 
sector. It's, that's for the farmers. Mark. Okay, so it's like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, except it's the farmers, and it's not lending to the deadbeat housing industry. Exactly. So they have very, very little uh, loan default. So because they have a very, very little, very, very little default, then the, uh, uh, the uh, last time I checked, it's sixty million out of eleven billion default. Okay. So they now they can borrow a very, very low interest rate, and then basically lending out and can collect huge, you know premium on that. So they're making a lot of money. They have been consistently making money in the past two years throughout the crisis. And I see the they earnings uh, start accelerating. And then with agricultural products, agricultural, you know, corn, wheat, all going through the roof. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, they're, the farmer's ability to pay back the loan just increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think, uh, you know, that those are a very good, you know, very good time for them. Now, they, uh, Farmer Mac, uh, I mean, you used the same logic to make lots of money with Farmer Mac before, and if I'm not wrong, you might have used a leverage play on that as well. Yes, uh, I, I use, uh, I bought the, the stock options on that before, and I also own some, I'm still, I'm own some stock, also own some stock option right now on Farmer Mac. Okay, Chen, what is the symbol for Farmer Mac? Yeah, Farmer Mac is AGN. Uh, AGN, as in Nancy? Or M as in Mac. Mac, Mike, yeah. Oh, Mike, yeah. Okay, AGM. Uh, You also had another idea, a very interesting idea, for a lithium company, I think, producing lithium for lithium batteries, or was it a lithium battery company in Australia? Would you care to tell us about that? Yeah, it's Potalysin Lithium. It's the world's largest lithium producer, the world's largest. Largest lithium producer in the world. It just recently IPO. Okay, and right now, since it's IPO, market cap only uh, half a billion, okay, 500 million, versus its competitor, SQM, but it's not in direct compi- uh, comp- you know, comparison because they also pr- produce potash, SQM, but that company is a $13 billion company. Okay, so if you want a, a leasing pure play, this one is a leasing producer, and it's a cash flow positive, and it just recently IPO, and what I believe is all the leasing ETF. Oh, the clean tech ETF, oh, oh these uh, future ETF, they're going to load up this stock because this is only leasing pure, pure play, and, and this is the world's largest leasing producer. Okay, Chen, uh, that's very interesting. What is the symbol for that company? It's a TLH, uh, Tom uh, Little Helen. Okay, very good. And one more thing yet I want to ask you about. You mentioned to me as we, before we went online, Goldman Sachs has increased their target for gold. Could you tell our listeners in the next 30 seconds about that? Yeah, Goldman Sachs just came out with a report, recommend their, their, <laughs> their colleagues and readers to buy gold futures, and then they increase gold target by $200. Uh, what they, their key is that the yield of Treasury is so low, and uh, they they have some calculation. They think gold go to sixteen hundred dollars easily at the current you know current environment, especially with QE two coming. They think the QE two will be a catalyst to bring gold to a much higher level. Mm-hmm. So they they just send out a report to recommend their client to buy gold aggressive. What do you think about that? Oh uh, well, you know, Goldman has been you know uh, bullish, bearish on gold for yeah. a while. I mean, right. I think they finally. And also, Goldman, also a lot of Wall Street uh, banks finally came to realization that gold is going higher. I think right. they just reluctantly admit 
what is going on now, right? Reluctantly I, admit is right, I, Chen. I'm sorry, that's all the time we've got. Right. Now, Chen, thank you so much for coming on with us and sharing some of your great investment ideas. Uh, if you want to hang around and listen to Amira Nani, you're welcome to do it and have some comments. But Amira Nani, the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corp., will be with us right after the breaks, folks. So don't go away. We'll be right back with uh, Mr. Adnani. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am pleased to have with me Amir Adnani. He's the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. There's about 60 million shares outstanding. Stock is trading today at $3.87, about $19 million of cash in the bank. Uh, the company uh, figures to be the next, the, next, uh, goal, uh, the next producer of uranium in the United States. The United States has really lagged behind its domestic demand. Uh, and we, we consume an awful lot of, of uranium in the United States for electricity production, and we're going to ask Amir about that in just a minute. So welcome, Amir, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi. Hi, Jay. That's great to be here with you again. Well, it's good to have you with me. Uh, we've talked uh, many times in the past. Uranium Energy has been a recommendation in my newsletter for, oh, for two or three years now, I suppose. Uh, Amir, you know, uranium, the metal itself, hasn't done that, done that well, really. U308, I guess, is the form we, we quoted in. Uh, it, it has not been the most exciting. We've seen a lot of other commodities arising. Uranium hasn't really risen that much. Can you make a case for long-term a long-term bullish case for uranium, and, and not just because you're talking your book, but can you, can you give us some, some sense of why uh, people should be looking forward to higher uranium prices and, and possibly higher profits from uranium producers in the future? Yeah, and you know, I think what we have to look at, Jay, is uh, very much the supply-demand fundamentals and not looking at what's going to be forecasted as increase in demand, but just supply-demand fundamentals today. And today, as you and I speak right now, there's over 400 nuclear reactors operating and consuming uranium on an annual basis. That translates to very identifiable demand, demand that uh, basically equals about 180 million pounds of uranium a year. And today, mine production is roughly 130 million pounds per year. So current mine production is only meeting two-thirds of existing demand. One-third of that existing demand is being filled through these secondary supplies, which are retired Russian nuclear warheads, and this has been going on since the end of the Cold War. Well, the secondary supplies or the dismantled Russian warheads are a decreasing source of supply, and the officially the, the agreement that has been dismantling them and bringing them into the market for the last 15 years officially expires in 2013, and there is no discussion around extending it, and frankly, there just isn't enough uranium left in the secondary stockpiles uh, to continue to meet with existing demand and, and then what is projected to be increasing demand based on the fact that there's 55 reactors under construction in the world today and based on the fact that over the next 20 years, nuclear capacity in the world is expected to double. Mm. The bottom line is, Jay, that uranium as a percentage of fuel cost for a nuclear reactor is less than 5% of their cost to generate electricity. For a nuclear reactor, they're not price sensitive. Yeah. They would much rather have access to supply because there is no alternative for uranium. And that is sort of the market that we're in. That's why I think the fundamentals are so favorable is that the, at the end of the day, 
you don't have a price-sensitive end user. There is no substitute for uranium when it comes to nuclear power generation. We're simply not mining enough uranium to even meet current demand, mm -hmm. and that demand is expected to double over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Marginal cost of production in the uranium business today is approximately around today's spot price. So oh. Today's spot price uranium, which is $48 per pound, it's truly the bottom of the cycle or the bottom for uranium prices. If it goes any lower, miners are going to lose money and, and mine uranium. And it has to go higher in order to incentivize new projects and new companies to construct and commission new projects. So to me, it's a very strong case, but it has lagged precious metals and copper in the last two years of the recovery we've seen in commodity prices. And even though every day we see an all-time high for price of gold and silver and copper is at a, a relatively all-time high, the last you know, two-year high, uranium is one-third of its all-time high, right. one-third. And it has these very fundamental sort of uh, uh, you know, issues and dynamics going for it. So I think it's one of those markets at the end of the day that, uh, uh, frankly, uh, people have overlooked. I think uranium maybe has been uh, a little bit handicapped by the fact that nuclear power is still sort of is, is a topic that people have become or are becoming more comfortable with as a source of electricity generation that we must include in the energy mix. And I think as the acceptance for nuclear power in the Western world becomes more widespread and China keeps bringing new reactors online, I think we're going to see a, a very strong environment for uranium prices uh, moving forward in the next uh, two to three years. Well, it certainly would seem to be the case uh, that 2013, when the agreement uh, to supply the world with uh, from warheads uh, expires, uh, do you do you that that certainly would be one of the reasons, Amir? I guess that the price of uranium has has remained as low as it is, is that that excess or that shortfall of supply and demand is being met by by the by this uh, government source. But do you see then uh, potential for rising prices by 2013, uh, 2013? Or, or earlier? I think it's going to be earlier because uranium is something that is always bought based on forward demand that has to be covered because nuclear reactors, you know, they generate power on a base load basis. They go on for a year to year and a half in a continuous uh, way to generate electricity. And on average, nuclear reactors have two to three years of forward demand in terms of demand for uranium or nuclear fuel. They cover two to three years of forward demand uh, on average. Mm -hmm. So it is very normal that going into a period uh, of 2013 where there's this eminent, uh, basically, disappearance of a great quantity of supply that's currently coming in from these government stockpiles, that we should see a period of rising uranium prices in 2011-2012 leading into 2013. Right. And, and, and that's where the market's going to have a real squeeze and real pressure on supply. And, and it, the case for uranium has always been about supply-side disruptions. You know, no one ever argues demand for uranium because it's so easy to predict demand for uranium. It's how many nuclear reactors are operating, and they consume X amount of uranium every year, about 500,000 pounds on average. And, you know, that's your demand profile. And yeah. It's, well, it's very uh, straightforward. Amir, your timing then, because you figure to be the next uranium producer in the United States, as I understand it, you are expecting to start production before the end of the year. Is that, are you still on track to achieve that? Uh, Jay, we're very well on track to get into production here with our Texas operations uh, in the next uh, 30 to 40 days. And this does 
coincide very favorably uh, with um, uh, uranium prices right now that uh, just over the last few weeks have actually moved higher. We've seen the spot price move from, uh, you know, during the summer it was at around 41 to $42 per pound. The last couple of weeks, uranium prices have moved up to $48 per pound, $48.25 to be exact as of yesterday. And the contract price for future delivery is $62 per pound. And that's kind of like the future curve for uranium. You can see the fact that it's higher than today's spot price is a pretty good indication of where the, where the market is, is telling you the future prices are going to be. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, our timing, I think, uh, is very good because, uh, you know, we are, um, uh, you know, as a, as a method of recovery, we're focused on uh, a way of recovering uranium referred to as institute recovery or ISR, uh, also referred to as institute leaching. It's basically solution mining. And this is a very low-cost way of mining uranium. Um, much lower cost than conventional mining methods. So, and I might add, I might add also, uh, ex- excuse me for interrupting, but it's also environmentally uh, friendly, which which should uh, should put some people's minds to rest uh, with respect to that issue. Well, yeah, we just don't have the kind of footprint that a conventional mining operation will have. You know, we don't have a tailings pond or waste truck or the the, the usual kind of bells and whistles that make the footprint of a conventional mine, uh, you know, quite large and very intrusive to the, the environment, you know, with solution mining, we have very, very low footprint, very small footprint. And, um, you know, subsequently, because we're not moving earth, instead we're really washing uranium out of uh, porous, permeable sandstone environments, uh, we end up with very low upfront capital requirement and, and very low operating costs. So on average, an ISR or institute recovery project tends to have uh, operating expense in the neighborhood of 12 to $15 per pound compared to a conventional mine, which could be anywhere from 30 to $50 per pound. And in fact, Jay, over the last few years, the only method of recovering uranium that has been coming online uh, more rapidly are ISR projects or uranium deposits that can be mined with this ISR technology. So it's a very advantageous technology. It is low cost. It is more environmentally friendly, and because because of these advantages, we can afford to be in production later this year mm-hmm. um, at today's prices, which I mentioned earlier are considered to really be uh, inadequate to stimulate interest in constructing conventional uranium mines. But yet, for an ISR-focused company like ours, with estimated cost in the neighborhood of thirteen to fourteen dollars per pound, we actually have a very good margin at $48 per pound uranium, which is the spot price, or $62 per pound, which is the contract price. So um, we feel the timing for this initial production of ours is very good. And, um, you know, Jay, we're, we're 100% unhedged. You know, we've managed to get to this point mm-hmm. without taking on uh, any contracts, without locking in a fixed price that caps our leverage to a higher or potentially appreciating uranium price. And, look, we only still have 60 million shares outstanding and no debt. And that's that's remarkable. Now, let me just ask you, though, our our listeners are going to want to put the pencil to the paper and try to determine, you know, what sort of cash flow you might generate. And I realize you don't you you don't want to, you know, make forward looking statements that might mislead investors at all. But you are talking about a cost of twelve to fifteen dollars potentially. I guess that's the cash cost of producing uh, the U three hundred eight product. And uh, and so, how much uranium do you uh, do you expect a U three hundred eight product do you expect to produce? 
this year, next year, let's say going out a couple of years, and then if you could just give our listeners a brief view of what the upside potential might be in Texas and elsewhere. Uh, sure. I mean, we have, to, we have to really look at it in the context of what our uh, production ramp-up goals are over the next uh, you know, year or two, two, because our initial production that starts uh, uh, next month as part of uh, uh, basically first phase of initial production, that's going to be uh, increased going into next year with the construction of a second unit that we're going to be working on. Uh, basically, we call these satellite projects. At, at each satellite location, we'll be recovering uranium and then sending it to a central processing plant that we own where we process and end up with U308, you know, the finished product that we sell to a utility. But basically our, our goal is that by 2012, uh, when we have production from two satellites, so the one that's starting next month and then the second satellite that we're going to construct next year, uh, once both satellites are up and running, we expect to hit a production run rate uh, by 2011-2012 of 1 million pound per year. Mm-hmm. And the 1 million pound per year production, uh, you, could, you could be selling at today's spot price of $48 per pound, again, notwithstanding that the contract price is a $62 per pound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can see that that can generate you know, $48 million if we're using today's spot price as a, as a number in revenue. And then we have estimated cash cost of uh, $13 to $14 per pound. Um, and and, and that's, that's, you know, we can kind of round numbers up a little bit, but, you know, we're basically looking at uh, anywhere between 32 to $33 million in, uh, uh, in, in operating cash flow after mm-hmm. we've taken the cash cost out mm-hmm. uh, from two satellite projects. Mm-hmm. We have four satellite projects in total, so we have two other projects that over the years we can develop additionally uh, that would allow us to expand our production profile beyond one million pounds per year. And we have a processing plant that can process up to three million pounds per year, so almost three times higher than the one million per pound uh, production rate that we hit to we expect to hit in the next um, uh, 12 to 15 months. All right, and that's so in are, Texas. Yeah. That's really in Texas. You do have properties elsewhere. I guess you're either having other companies develop and explore those, or you will be doing something with them yourselves. Well, you know, the, we've, we've tried to remain focused on delivering things. I mean, as a small company, we sure. don't want to be tackling multiple fronts. So we have actually... Uh, projects. We have 20 uranium projects in six different states. Four of them happen to be in Texas along with a processing plant, uh, but outside of Texas we have uh, a very large uh, property base of, of you know, projects we own 100% uh, and uh, u- uranium resources in the ground that were historically developed by majors that were in the uranium business dropped these projects and then we came and picked them back up. So, you know, in, in Texas alone, we have uh, close to 12 million pounds of uranium in the ground. Outside of Texas, we have close to 22 million pounds of uranium in the ground. So we actually have even more resources outside of Texas, uh, and that, that really is part of our platform for future development and growth. Well, uh, but, but, Jay, the, the bottom line is we can deliver something for our shareholders and, 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 and for our company short-term in Texas that is unparalleled, and that's production. You know, there's a lot of uranium in the ground, but what has been a difficult to achieve for any company, junior or major, uh, in the last five, six years in the uranium business has been production. If you right. deliver production, it's, uh, it's a very unique uh, sort of proposition. Well, it is. It is, Amir. Uh, and you, I think 
something like only three or four million pounds a year are being produced in all of the United States now. So you will be uh, increasing the production levels in the United States very substantially when you get to that million pound level. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, total U.S. production today is about three and a half million pounds. Mm-hmm. So at even one million pound per year production, we are basically 20% of or 25% of U.S. domestic production. At, at the full capacity of our plants, we, we basically double U.S. production and right. become the largest uranium producer in the U.S. Well, it is a it's very a exciting story, Amir. Unfortunately, we are out of time uh, right now. But can you tell investors, uh, our listeners, what your, uh, what your website is so they can follow your progress? Yeah, very straightforward. It's www.uraniumenergy.com. That's all one word, uraniumenergy.com. And we trade on the NYSC Amex uh, with the ticker symbol UEC for Uranium Energy Corp. Amir, thank you so much for sharing your information with us. It is an exciting story. As I say, it's one I've had in my newsletter for some time. That's all the time we have now, but we're going to be right back with our featured guest this week, Andre Julian. He's the CEO of California-based OpVest Wealth Management. This is a very interesting company. I think you're going to really profit from listening to what Andre uh, has to say about the markets and about the products that he can provide for you uh, as an investor. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Andre Julian. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and my main guest this week is Andre Julian. Uh, Andre is the Senior Market Strategist at OpVest Wealth Management in Irving, California. Irvine, California, I should say. OpVest specializes in alternative investment strategies that strive to give clients proper asset allocation using a proprietary model that spreads portfolio allocation across separate asset classes. Uh, uh, Andre uh, has built an impressive list of accomplishments in the financial industry, including co-authoring several educational books on trading strategies, becoming a regularly featured uh, analyst on investment radio and television. And I might add that I was... uh, I was fortunate to be on a show uh, with Andre not long ago on Fox Business. Uh, Andre is uh, actively writing educational and analytical articles related to investing. Uh, He is registered as a Series 3 commodities broker, a CTA, and a CFTC, an NFA, an RIA, an FINRA, all of those uh, all of those initials uh, giving him qualifications in that area of business. He, uh, and he is well-versed in fundamental and technical analysis of commodities and equity markets, risk management, asset allocation, compliance, and economics. Compliance is a big one these days, that's for sure. Uh, he focuses on having investors, uh, on helping investors, I should say, by passing his extensive knowledge on to uh, people like, like you on this show. And so I'm very pleased to have you, Andre. Thank you for joining us at Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it as well. It was a pleasure uh, meeting up with you uh, on television, so to speak. You were in California. I was in the studio in New York. Uh, but I would like to begin our discussion, perhaps uh, to start with, with the macro picture, sort of where, where, what you view 
of the world is right now, the global economy, the global problems that we're having in the uh, in the debt markets, for example. Then I'd like to perhaps drill down a little more close close to home uh, in uh, the U.S. And then finally, maybe if you have some comments on California, which is having their problems these days, as we are in New York as well. Uh, the states are in big trouble. Uh, there seems to be a lot of debt out there, a lot of inability to service all of that debt. So I'd like to ask you, where is it going to lead? Now, some people, uh, people we've had on this show, we've had uh, people that believe it's going to end in some sort of the deflationary uh, implosion a la 1930s, and then we have others like economist John Williams, who's been on with us, and he's predicting a hyperinflation. Uh, I guess we'd be lucky if we could muddle along and have something not so catastrophic on either end of the spectrum, but what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's, we're going to hit inflation. Uh, I, I don't buy the hyperinflation. I think there are enough controls around to uh, where we won't get that bad. But, you know, we're printing a lot of money, and that's really what it comes down to, and it's globally. It's not just here in our country. And when you print money and the, the, it devalues the currency, it devalues the, the value of the actual uh, paper uh, paper money, and what, what happens eventually is you have more money chasing fewer goods. It's just right. economics 101, and when that happens, well, that that's gives you inflation. And we already see inflation occurring. The core inflation isn't really going anywhere. If you look at the CPI, you look at the reports that come out, core inflation is rather stagnant at the moment. But look what's inflating, commodity prices. Mm-hmm. Commodity prices are going up because there, there's, and again, there, there are more dollars chasing those goods. There's more demand coming in from China, the emerging nations uh, coming in from India. Uh, Brazil has a very good economy. And so I think if you look at it uh, across the macro level, what you're seeing is that we tend to look at things uh, from our point of view. We tend to look at things from the United States point of view and uh we don't look, tend to look at things from China's point of view, from Europe's point of view. Whereas if you, if you travel to China, if you travel into Brazil, they actually have a really good knowledge of, of our government and what's going on in our government as well as their own, as well as China's government, as well as Australia's government. So it's, it's interesting. I think we've become very ethnocentric over the years because we're so used to being the leader, the leader right. in GDP, the leader in production. Well, as you see that starting to, you know, the, this change of the guard, so to speak, as you see China's GDP growing and as you see these emerging nations really starting to uh, impact the, the world and the global economy more, you, you start realizing that those countries, they already have inflation. They're already trying to curb that inflation. Well, it's, it's just going to fill us. And, it, it, it's, again, I wish I had a ball and I could say when. Uh, I, I don't know when. And I don't, but I know it's not if. I, th- I think that it will start occurring within the next, you know, let's give it a time frame of uh, two to five years. I think that's a, a really good window where you start, you'll start seeing that inflation creeping up in the core. Well, Andre, uh, you know, it's not just the United States, of course. We're seeing uh, what some people are comparing to the 1930s in a beggar thy neighbor currency devaluation situation where countries are printing more and more money in an attempt to try to. Uh, to debase their own currency to get an advantage on exports. And even the countries that have these huge export um, surpluses, uh, uh, trade surpluses, I should say, like China, like Japan and others, are aggressively uh, debasing their currency, trying to get their currency cheaper. And, of course, that's what the United States is doing. But the United States has this huge this huge uh, deficit, export deficit, uh, trade deficit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been that way for a long time. We've never seen the United States in any time in recent years having anything like a trade surplus in a given year. Where is this going to end? I mean, everybody can't just keep printing more and more money to try to cheapen their currency. It's like 
it's like we're going nowhere with this thing. Well, I, I think that's the problem is that because everybody's trying to do it, it, it nullifies itself. And, yeah. and, and it makes an impact if one country does it. Japan, they have a, their their economy is based on their exports, so um, almost entirely their economy. So they, if they don't have strong exports, then their economy really starts to sink. So they, they keep on trying, they keep on trying, but look, their, their currency really isn't, isn't devaluating as well as they want it to. Uh, same thing with us. Our dollar is going down, and that's great. Uh, for our exports, but then what does that do to our imports? Because we don't rely on exports wholeheartedly. We, we also have imports in the mix. And so the more you start talking about it and the more you start trying to connect the dots between the different countries and what's good for one country, not good for, for another, you realize that we are truly in this global economy. It mm-hmm. is something that we talked about for years. Once China became trade of the, uh, part of the World Trade Organization, that was something we were talking about before uh, China uh, came in, and, and one of the interesting things is, you know, I think back, and I, we used to discuss the impact that China was going to have on world trade and global demand, and it was something that was going to happen in the future. And we would tell people, look, look at, look at the demand, look at commodities. Commodities are going to become more in demand. Products like cotton, uh, because there'll be more people buying T-shirts. Just, just things that really made common sense. And they were things that just made sense to us in in the economic uh, viewpoint, kind of an esoteric way, because it didn't happen yet. Well, then once it happened, it took some years to build, but now you you see all these forecasts coming true, and you really start to realize that it is the new economy, and uh, the G20, uh, they're getting together, and they're trying to reformulate currencies uh, to really somehow level the playing field so that we can get to the point where there there is a rebalancing, if you will, yeah. and so that we can have this, this free trade continue and uh, make it possible for all countries to actually uh, go into growth, which is just not happening right now, and, it, and I think it will take a while. Uh, but one, once, you know, they'll figure it out. This is, this is what economists do. This is what the central bank does. And they, they have a, there's a very delicate balance between doing what's right for the central bank and doing what's right for the consumer. And that's really what they do is they consistently try to search and find that balance. When it's out of balance, it's uh, not great for a while, but then it gets back into balance because uh, of the, you know, by, by force majeure. I mean, that's just what happens. Well, I, it's, what troubles me about this situation is that everybody is trying to do the same thing. So you have the countries that are export, have export surpluses. They're still trying to cheapen their currency, or China's refusing to allow their currency to appreciate. The United States, on the other hand, needs to have a weaker currency in order to balance its trade. Or maybe there's some other things we could do, like maybe working harder. I mean, we had Chen Lin on with us. Uh, he's from Beijing, and he's very well tuned into what's going on in China. And, and he says, you know, even if, even if the Chinese renminbi were valued upward by 20%, it wouldn't help our trade balance that much because our labor costs are so much different than theirs. So, I mean, what bothers me and what makes me maybe less, less optimistic than you sound is where is this... Um, you know, if everybody is looking out after their own welfare and we're at odds with each other, um, you know, maybe, maybe things have to change domestically, internally in China, maybe in the United States before we, before we see something. Where, when will China start to rely on maybe its growth internally with internal demand rather than having to sell to the United States? Because the United States can't buy stuff anymore the way we used to be able to. We used to be able to buy because we bought on credit, right? We lived on credit for a long time. Now the banks aren't lending. The credit cards are being taken away from people or the credit lines are being rolled back. 
So where do we go from here? I mean, is this uh, so this? But your your reading is basically inflation, I guess. That's you think that's where the risk is right now for investors. You know, or where the opportunity is. Well, yeah, there's there's inflationary risk, but also you know you hit on a good point. I I, uh, I like to always uh, stay in the middle between optimism and pessimism because uh, you know there's always two sides. There's the you're looking at at it from an economist's point of view, and then you're also looking at it from an investor's point of view. So the there are things that happen in the economy that aren't necessarily that great, but there are opportunities for the investor that are great because of them. Uh, but as as far as what you said about China, I, you know, I agree with you. They're they're becoming more self-sufficient, and the risk is their labor cost. The risk is is that you know we won't be able to import from China anymore because it's going to become too expensive. Because as their yuan appreciates and as their labor costs go up, their products are going to become more expensive, and we're not really going to be able to afford them. Then we're going to shift into more of an export nation. Mm-hmm. And as they become more independent, they will rely less on us and less on our goods and services. And that could really that could really uh, put a dent in our GDP and our our. Um, uh, struggle for growth. And That's so very interesting because one of the theories that I saw uh, somebody writing about this uh, suggested that what the United States has said to China is either you value your currency upward or we're going to uh, you know, go to QE2 and print massive amounts of money, flood the global markets with liquidity, which I think would drive up your, your commodity prices that you're talking about, and would also, though, start to drive up the cost of Chinese labor, and we'll get you that way. Uh, if the United States are saying to China, we'll get you that way. If you don't want to play ball with us and revalue your currency upwards, then we're going to just flood the world with, with, with uh, U.S. dollar liquidity, and you're going to have inflation, and your wage, pr- wage prices are going to go up, and then you'll be less competitive. But, uh, you know, that, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, I guess. But, but getting to that point, uh, uh, Andre, I'd like to ask you about the bond market. You know, would, would the United States interest rates are so low. Will the rest of the world keep buying and funding the United States deficits? The United States, we are living beyond our means. We have for a long time. Will the rest of the world continue to buy U.S. Treasuries, and if not, then do we go to just QE2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and beyond, uh, and, and we start to, the Fed starts to buy our paper? Where do you think the bond markets are going, and is there, is there danger in the bond markets, or are you a bull or a bear in the long-term Treasuries? Yeah, I mean, I think there is danger in, in the bond market. They've been talking about the bond buck, you know, bubble forever, and obviously the bonds just keep on going up because people continue to throw money at the bonds, and they're fine with these low yields. They're, they're fine with, I mean, the, the, you, you put money under a mattress and get better yields than you do with the, with the two-year note, and that's yeah. what it's coming down to. I heard there was a, a Microsoft came out with a corporate bond the other day. It was a, I think it was a three-year corporate bond. It's a Microsoft corporate bond, and I think it paid uh, 0.35%. Oh, my goodness. It, it was just ridiculous. And people, people were saying, great, you know, count me in. It's so it, it, it's getting to the point where people are, are putting their money into these low-yielding bonds, and, and they're fine with it. Uh, but at some point, that's really going to shift, and I think a lot of people are going to be uh, caught by surprise, especially people that are relying on their bond portfolios into retirement or people that are relying on, let's say, dividends for the retirement. All of a sudden, those interest, rate change, those interest rates change, your whole tax structure has changed, and all of a sudden, you're making half the money that you were, uh, those people are going to definitely be caught by surprise, and that's that's troublesome. Uh, so when you when you look at the overall uh, bond picture as a bubble, it's tough to say when that bubble is going to break. But at some point, the interest rates will have to start going up. At some point, the yields will have to start going up. And so it's good as an investor to actually start protecting yourself against that now before it starts happening. 
Right. Well, certainly we've seen these, these long-term U.S. Treasury markets tend to go for a long, long time. I mean, we've had a bull market since, 2000, since I should say, 1982 about. Uh, and, you know, you look at that long-term climb in the, uh, in the U.S. 30-year bond and you say, you know, when is this thing going to end? I mean, it just seems, and it seems incredible because you and I were talking about this a little bit off, off the air, but what seems to be happening is the, foreign, uh, the Federal Reserve policy is to keep interest rates low, that helps to reliquify the banks, right? The banks can can buy treasuries, and they do it not, you know, they leverage up and buy treasuries, and they're getting a small, not a very big yield to be to be sure, but with the leverage, they get a reasonably good return without any without any risk. That is, the government can always print more money and pay them back. And it's it's really it's taking money out of the pockets of people like my mom and dad who have worked all their lives, saved their money, and they're in retirement now, and they're getting they're they're getting squat for their reach for their returns and, and to live on. This is a reallocation of wealth, it seems to me, from the people that worked hard, saved their money, and played by the rules to the bankers. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, it's, and, and right now the government really isn't giving any incentive for the banks to do anything else because I, I think what a lot of investors don't understand, and uh, you know, the more I talk to people, the more I talk to uh, different investors from, uh, you know, Basically, RIAs. We work with a lot of different RIAs because of uh, our relationships. We we are a boutique firm. We mm-hmm. we do send money outside. We don't need it all under our umbrella. We don't need to make make money from every bit of money that comes through here because we want to make sure that we're allocating our portfolios properly. And if there's a you know if there's a good opportunity elsewhere, then obviously we're going to uh, send our investors in that direction. And through our relationships and through what we've developed, I mean, it's just surprising to me how few people understand exactly how the bank, how the banks work, and how they make their money. It's actually yeah. shocking to me. Uh, but right now, the, the government is is basically allowing the banks and and telling the showing all of us that the way that the banks can make guaranteed money is by borrowing cheap, leverage leverage you know obviously leverage and borrowing very mm-hmm. cheaply from the government. And then basically, you know, buy their bonds and lock in a guaranteed rate. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, you know, the government is basically saying, here, you take this money, we'll lend it to you at a really cheap rate, and then why don't you take that money and buy our bonds back, and we'll give you a better rate. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that spread, who's paying for that spread? Yeah. Well, who is paying for it? And that's, that's, that's us. Exactly and, right. That's and, us in terms of the, so, the, yeah. We're lining the pockets for the for the banks now, which right, to right. me is it's an incredible it's an incredible story, and, and it, it almost doesn't make sense. But when you really break it down, that's exactly what's happening. That's what's happening, and Andre. It doesn't sound at all like a free market uh, such a model to me. Yeah, and that's and that's what's frustrating, and that's yeah. you know. So again, when you look at it economically. Um, it, it's always behind the auspices of making sure that the, the global economy is 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 going to do well and it's it's going to survive and it's okay to do it this way. It's the you know the new normal, the new way we do things. But at, at the end of the day, the taxpayer bears the burden of paying for the government's mistakes. Yeah, that's that's right, and uh, that's why there's something out there called a Tea Party. Whether or not you agree with them or not, it's going to be interesting. I think as these elections come forward, I've, we've had one guest who thinks that the Tea Party is a much bigger threat to the establishment than the establishment believes. But but we'll see uh, which way that goes. Uh, no editorial here from me on that necessarily. But I would just like to. We only got about a minute here, and I, before we go to break, and we're going to have you come back for a few minutes into the second hour of our show today. But I want to ask you. Uh, so you, the dollar, the dollar now, the 
dollar is being driven lower. That's intentional to try to inflate the dollar, to debase the currency. But the dollar is the world's reserve currency. All these currencies are printing, you know, all these countries are printing more money to try to cheapen their currencies, as we just just discussed. Now we're seeing that France and, France and, um, and, and China have been talking about uh, about a new currency. Uh, I guess we're going to go to break now, but uh, let's let's come back and, and talk about this notion of whether or not gold can replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency, or some kind of combination of commodities, perhaps, that might provide a basket to, to provide some real wealth underneath a global currency. Well, if we can talk about that, uh, Andrea, as soon as we come back from the station or from our commercial break, uh, I'd like to uh, to pursue that. So, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Andre Julian uh, after the break. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Valet, Inmet, Finross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. 
As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, I, I want to uh, welcome you back to the second hour of today's show. Uh, again, I want to thank you for listening to the show, and I want to thank our sponsors um, for making this show financially viable. The sponsors for our second hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, Brigus Gold, Golden Minerals, Metanor Resources, Uranium Energy Corp., and Revolution Resources. Well, Andre Julian uh, was with us the first hour, oh, and he is back now, thankfully. Uh, he, uh, they were having some phone issues in their office, and we lost Andre uh, just for a minute, but uh, my engineer tells me that he is back. So welcome back, Andre. Thank you so much. Okay, so you tried the landline and it didn't work, and you're back on your cell phone now? Back on the cell phone technology. Okay, well, the cell was coming through very well. A lot of times cell phones don't work well. We like our guests to be on land phones, but cell phone is better than no phone, and I'm so glad to have you back because I was hanging out in the wind here. I was going to have to think of some things to talk about by myself. I could probably do that, uh, but nonetheless. Yes, you can. That, Better to have you there. Uh, you are our main guest today. So we, uh, when we went to the break, we, we started talking about the potential for the dollar to replace, or I'm sorry, for gold or some combination of gold and commodities perhaps to replace the dollar. And I mentioned that there have been reports that the French and the Chinese have been clandestinely or quietly, secretly behind, behind closed doors talking about some sort of a model. And the French now become, I guess, the leaders of the G20. And they are talking about using their, their office to start to force some discussion along those lines. Uh, what are your thoughts about the possibility of the dollar being replaced with gold or some sort of combination of commodities and gold? I mean, remember, we used, to, we used to be on the gold standard, then we went off the gold standard, and, and I think the discussion has always been that it complicates the, the currency uh, evaluation because then gold, it moves in its, of itself, which, which obviously will force currencies to move uh, beyond just the normal movement of the currency exchanges. So, you know, every, no matter how you back the dollars, there, there's some kind of an issue. Uh, but I think that what's happened in the past few years, and especially what's happening with the currencies now as, as we continue on with this global economy, is at least we'll raise the question that, that we need to find some kind of a standard, some, some way to level the playing field, and I think that's what they're, they're really trying to do. Uh, the, the rumors were in the, G, the G20s trying to get together, and actually some, 
somehow handicap the currencies right now and, and basically assign values uh, globally to say that, you know, China, that this is how much the currency should be worth here and this is how much the currency should be worth in Brazil and the United States. And in a way, you know, it's, it's maybe a currency's, uh, currency trader's worst nightmare. Uh, but somehow find that that handicap so that we can we can start with uh, start from scratch, if you will, and uh, help spurn on this this global economy. And so the discussions are they're relevant and they're relevant and they're uh, they're valid. If you you have to remember that if you if you tie them to a commodity like like gold, let's say uh, gold is is a very finite. There's a very finite quantity of gold. I don't think a lot of people realize that there's only about 160,000 tons of gold in the world. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that people can imagine how big that is. When you ask them to to put a to put a size on that, people say, "Oh, will, will, will it fill a, a cornfield or will it fill a football field?" Mm-hmm. Actually, that amount of gold will basically fill a 3,500 square foot home. Mm-hmm. That's, That's it. it. That's it. So there's there's just not a lot of gold in, in, in the world, and that underground gold that we know of that will take probably fifteen to twenty years to mine is only another forty thousand tons. So you're looking right. at a three car garage. That's right. You're looking at a whole house being filled. So because we have such a finite quality, and the gold supply is only increasing at about one point six percent a year, and that's based on the best technology we have, and we don't know how much more there is underground beyond that. You're looking at something that's controlled and finite. Right. Now, let's look at the currencies. Currencies right now are hitting the system. They're being printed at about 11% a year. Hmm. So they're flooding the system with currencies. And, again, it, it's that, it goes back to that inflation question that we talked about earlier. When you have so many dollars chasing fewer goods, that's when the inflation picture comes in. Gold has been tied to inflation as an inflationary hedge, so why not start to tie it to these currencies again? Uh, so that we can actually have a tangible, finite asset, and we can start with a, a good definition and build a structure around that. Mm-hmm. Well, Andre, one of the uh, w- one of the excuses that I hear from people as to why you can't back a currency with gold is that uh, is that there's not enough of it around, and that uh, there just isn't enough, and you wouldn't have enough liquidity. And then I say to them, well, yeah, but what if gold was forty thousand dollars an ounce? Then you wouldn't need very much of it to back up a currency. You know, it's all sort of relative. But um, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think that's you know that's the point is that you you have a defined uh, quantity of it, and you know how much is out there, you know how much is in bullion, you know how much the banks are holding, you know how much is in circulation, and because of that, you can you can define it, you can actually come up with some kind of a standard because chances are there isn't going to be a big surprise uh, and where all of a sudden you have this huge quantity of gold that comes out of nowhere, just falls out of space. Right. Because you can control it, you can actually can then control the price of gold, which then can uh, the, uh, obviously uh, flowing into backing the currencies. So that that's the point. Maybe gold does have to be forty thousand dollars an ounce, or maybe it does have to be you know a thousand or two thousand dollars an ounce. Whatever the case is, it's yeah. it's not. Is it going to happen anytime soon? Uh, you know what? I, I I don't think so. Simply because, you know, we have uh, we have the central banks in there, we have the Fed in there, we have Wall Street in there. There are too many people that that wouldn't want something like that to happen. We have currency traders and we have gold traders, and so th- there are so many variables that are affecting that. But is it a, is it a worthwhile conversation? Is it and is it at least is it worth having to help people really start to understand? how this uh, global economy is affecting our currencies and our exports and our imports, yeah, I think it's a conversation that's necessary to have. 
Well, you were mentioning earlier in our discussion that, uh, you know, how China, how the wealth is, is shifting and how the power is shifting, the economic power is shifting to the east. Uh, and China has been encouraging its people to buy gold. It's taken off all the restrictions. It, it wants its people to buy gold. China, in, two, in ni- 2009, in April, talked about how they had doubled their reserves in gold, the, the official reserves in gold, and that, I think, set off a lot of bullish, bullishness among major traders in gold, uh, not just governments, but, but you know, large traders. And uh, so I'm really wondering now, um, you know, if China is getting gold, and you, you mentioned there's lots of people that don't want it, but we have sort of a growing, I think, geopolitical tension, and in part with this, we're seeing it with the currency wars, and I'm wondering if we might not see, you know, that, that China and France and some of these other currencies that might not necessarily want to see the United States on top of the world all the time, and, and let's, you know, you and I are American citizens, so we, we sort of benefit by having, by being, be, being uh, you know, citizens in a country that has the world's reserve currency. We can keep printing money and getting goods and services in exchange for that. We've really benefited from that, but there might be some other people out there that aren't so happy about that, like the Chinese, maybe like the Indians, like, you know, like, like, um, like the Russians and other people. Yeah, and and that's, uh, again, we look at it very ethnocentrically. We look at it from our point of view, and obviously we would like things to to be our way and, you know, as citizens of this country and and as patriots and then also as investors and uh, as taxpayers. I mean, so we we want things to to go our way without a doubt, but we have to start realizing that there's there's a definite balance. And as as China continues uh, to uh, to basically enforce their will and what they want, I think they've made it clear that eventually they want their currency to be the world currency. They right, and, and you know, we're, uh, we only have a few more minutes, and I know you have another appointment to catch pretty soon. We've, in fact, my engineer is saying we have four minutes, so I've got to move on here to your firm and what you're doing. One of the interesting things I found, about, I found out about your firm is that, and your philosophy of investing is that you are really interested in sort of optimum portfolio diversification. I know about this because all MBA students learn about Markowitz portfolio diversification. And one of the things that I always understood about gold was it was negatively correlated with the major markets. Generally speaking, over time it changes. But to have some assets in your portfolio that go down when everything else goes up is a good thing in terms of reducing the volatility of that portfolio. Now, I understand that your firm is really interested in uh, not just stocks and bonds, but the whole spectrum of investment opportunities to allow people to maximize returns for any given level of risk. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. We, we really want to diversify across uh, different asset classes. I mean, obviously, you, you know, you do the stocks and bonds, and that's, that's pretty straightforward. And we have a deep value investing model, so we're in it for the long term. And uh, we want our investors to feel secure. And obviously, depending on their time horizon, we have different, uh, different investors have different needs. But in general, if we speak in generalities, uh, that's obviously a big part of our portfolio, but again, you, you can't uh, you can't help yourself with market risk and the exposure you have to market risk by diversifying within a certain market. And so, I yeah. think a lot of a lot of RAs, a lot of uh, uh, investment companies, they just want you to diversify within the stock market. But as you saw in 2008, that doesn't help you when the market moves against you. You know, we've seen these big dips; it really doesn't help your portfolio. But if you diversify across assets, like in managed commodities, that's that's something that we we really have been fervently uh, preaching for years now. Uh, there, there are studies done by Yale, Harvard, Wharton uh, that, that go back years and years and years, and they actually show that if you have anywhere from 20 to 25% of your current portfolio, if you take it out of, out of there and actually place it into managed commodities, that you have 
uh, more potential for return and less risk and a smoother risk curve uh, over the over the 30-year period that they've studied it. And it's just been shown in study after study after study. So, you know, why rob our clients of the ability to do that? If you're making an average of seven and a half percent in the in the equities market over the past 20 years, and if you can just take those equities and, and take 20% of them out and infuse managed futures in place of them, and you're going to return uh, eight, eight and a half or 9%. And if that's shown and if it's proven and it's statistically a valid test, then why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of it? And that's really where the discussion starts. All right, Andre, we only have a couple more minutes. I want to ask you, your firm then is a broker-dealer. You can buy, buy and sell stocks for clients and, and bonds. Uh, you do commodities, uh, precious metals, I guess, and you also sometimes uh, farm out. That is, if it isn't something you know is good, if you have something that's good for your clients, if you don't provide that service, you will pass them on to, another, to, to someone else that can help them. Your idea is to help your, help your clients as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we you know we can we can buy and sell commodity contracts. So if, you, if somebody's interested in trading gold, for instance, I, I think a a great way to go right now is if you look at the micro, the e micro. It's uh, on the Globex. It's one tenth of the gold contract. So for people that maybe don't want to trade a whole contract, they can get into a, a one tenth of the gold, so that mm-hmm. they don't have to have as deep pocketbooks. That's something that we recommend. That now that's a product that we can trade directly, and we mm-hmm. can benefit from that. But we have clients that say, no, I want to buy physical gold. Okay, great. Well, then we're going to refer them to to a place like Bullion Vault. Bullion mm-hmm. Vault is, we think they're doing a great service. It's actually, uh, it's gold. It's it's in a vault and it's audited. And you get you buy gold certificates. And when you buy those gold certificates, you own you know X amount of gold, whether it be one ounce, two ounces, ten ounces, a hundred ounces, whatever you want. And you actually own that physical gold without having to worry about the massive surcharges and the massive spreads that they you know tack on the collectible coins, etc. You don't you don't have the gold in your house, you don't get it delivered, but you you physically own it and you have a certificate that shows it. So I think that's a great way to buy gold. We can't do that in house. That's we just don't we don't have the gold sitting here to do that. But we'll gladly refer someone out to to a place like that. So that's just that's one example. But that's really what we do. We feel that if we if we give our clients and, and our customers uh, the best advantages they can get overall in their entire portfolio, we don't need their entire portfolio. That's not what we're about. We want them to be happy with the performance of their entire portfolio, and if we can be a part of that, uh, that that's good enough for us. Well, that's that's remarkable. I thank you. It's uh, for sharing that with our listeners because I think Wall Street is 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 known too much for its greediness, and so if you know you can help people, that's uh, what what your job is about. And I think in the long run, uh, what goes around comes around, and you'll you'll benefit from that, uh, Andre. Thank you very much. I want to ask you though before we let you go. I know you've got an appointment now, but your website so people can catch up with your firm and and maybe uh, avail themselves to your services. What is that website? It's www.opvest.com, and if you go there, it basically links to all, all our additional services as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Andre, for being with us today as our main guest. I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Jeff Dice. He's Ron Paul's chief of staff. He's going to be with us to talk a little bit about the elections, perhaps, and and what his views are for the country and the markets as we go forward. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Dice.
business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love mirror. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times i am your host jay taylor and it's really a pleasure for me to say that i've got a good friend with me jeff diced 
He is Ron Paul's chief of staff. I've known Jeff now for a number of years. Uh, he recently moved back uh, from California, moved back into uh, Ron Paul's office uh, to become the chief of staff. He's a, has a, he's an, a tax attorney who knows an awful lot about our tax system, and uh, a lot of it he doesn't care much for, I must say, but uh, I think I'm not putting words in his mouth. But in any event, uh, Jeff, uh, it's really good to have you back with us. Jay, great to be back. Thanks. Oh, it's, it's good to have you back on the East Coast. I'd much rather have you here than over in California, but, and I know that uh, I believe your family, or your wife at least, likes it back here. If, if you don't, you might rather be back there playing golf, perhaps, and, yeah, perhaps. and working out tax problems for people. But Exactly. But uh, here you are, and you, I know that you love, uh, really love working for your boss, Ron Paul. What are the chances of him being reelected this year? This, this term? Oh, I, they appear to be pretty good. Uh, you know, we never know for sure, so yeah. we'll, uh, we'll let the voters decide. Yeah, okay. Well, and, and how many terms will he have served then? Because he, he served a certain number of terms and then he was out he of was Congress. He was in Congress in the late 70s and early 80s and returned in the 1996 election a couple of years after the uh, sweep of Republicans in 94. So he's been continuously in this seat he currently holds since January of 97. Mm-hmm. Well, do you expect uh, you expect some major changes in the, in terms of the uh, in terms of the composition? Are we going to see the, the Republicans take the House, both houses? Well, I think he would if the election was today. Um, the Republicans need to pick up 39 seats to hold the majority on the House side, and all the predictions are are more than that currently. Uh, you know, we're still a month, well, three weeks away, so things can change. World events could occur. Uh, one never knows, but I would say that the the House still appears that it will be in Republican hands. The Senate is less likely, and, and I would caution that you really have to be on the ground in the states or districts where some of these races are being held to understand the polling and yeah. the data. It's not enough to just read national media that tells you a certain candidate is ahead or behind because you, the polling is very scientific, and you have to, to go about it in a way where you're really asking likely voters so I would say, in terms of the Senate, it, it's uh, it's hard to say, but it appears that the Senate's going to be somewhere around 50-50 or, or maybe a slight majority Democrat. Okay, so if it's 50-50, is that going to make any difference in terms of... Um in terms of some of the major programs that Obama has had passed so far? Well, in parliamentary terms, on the Senate side, you need 60 votes to invoke cloture, which means to bring a bill to a vote and, in, in essence, overcome a filibuster. So, so most people think that you need 60, uh, a majority of 60 votes in the Senate to basically overcome a, uh, a president's veto, for instance. So the Republicans are certainly not going to have that many votes when, when it comes to attempting to, uh, to repeal, let's say, uh, Obamacare, for instance, which has been discussed, although I remain skeptical that the Republicans will actually uh, go so far as to re- repeal the bill outright or attempt to repeal it outright. Yeah. So they probably wouldn't have enough power or enough will to do it. Well, I think both, um, yeah. that they, wouldn't, they would literally not have the votes but also, I think that the insurance mandates in the so-called Obamacare bill contain some things that Republicans, a lot of Republicans, have shown that they've liked over the last couple of decades. Right. Um, there's there's corporatism and and uh, crony capitalism, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase, uh, in, involved in uh, in forcing uh, people to carry insurance. Right. 
So, um, I, you know, it, uh, some senators have even been on record, some Republican senators are saying, well, we need to repeal the worst parts of it. Mm-hmm. They've already sort of to soften the language yeah. about repeal Obamacare. But if you go ask a small business owner, um, they'll tell you they just want to scrap the bill in its entirety. Right. Well, yeah, a small business owner, you're, you know, they can't afford. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, anyway, this is a philosophical difference, and of course, we've we've uh, we've merged away so far from the notion of free market economics and individual uh, responsibility for our lives. We're looking to government to fix everything for us, and look where it's getting us. Though, um, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near the end of this uh, housing market problem. For example. And the banks are not uh, are not able to even deal with the uh, with the mortgage issues. They, uh, you know, there's fraud. There's all kinds of problems. There's even a threat that the banks are going to have to buy back, perhaps be forced to buy back, even from Freddie and Fannie. I think some of the some of the paper because it it was never you know the the liens were never perfected when these banks uh, wrote the wrote the mortgages and then sold them off. Amazing. How far? Uh, so Jeffrey, you know, we have. It, it seems to me now we're talking to uh, we had Bob Hoy on our show and Bob seems to think that that the um, the Tea Party is a big deal. He seems to think there are some real that that it's bigger than the mainstream is making it out to be. Uh, you know he sees Glenn Beck as uh, as a modern day Thomas Paine and he thinks there's going to be some major. He thinks there may be some major changes. Bob is also one who believes that that ultimately politicians and policymakers will be overwhelmed by by markets and bob is one who also thinks that we're going to see a gold standard reemerge bec- not because anybody's going to want it but because the markets will be so shattered and torn and, and and destroyed that in order to restore to restore confidence from the bottom up it's going to be required do you have any sort of do you think that's a realistic um, idea well i agree with him that the laws of economics will eventually trump anything governments try to do um in in even the most centrally controlled economies, of course, we see thriving black markets, etc. But I, I'm not certain that, that the Tea Party movement represents the best of America when it comes to politics. It certainly represents genuine anger. Yeah. I think that's a healthy uh, and good thing. But to the yeah. extent it's exploited and co-opted by yeah. either party here in Washington, right. uh, you know, we really run the risk of having these Tea Party candidates uh, come here and just become more of the same, just get enveloped in, in sort of the same process that we've well, had. The other thing is that the people who, who support the Tea Party, you'd have to go to them individually and say, look, do you support you know, a wholesale radical change in the nature of our government? In other words, what our government does for us. Do you think that there should be public roads and public Social Security pensions and public Medicare medical payments and... Uh, troops, American troops basically providing defense for the NATO nations around the world. Um, you know, until people are, are ready to change sort of their fundamental underlying view of the role of government, then my fear is that the energy and the anger behind the Tea Party movement is, is bluster. Right. Well, it certainly, it certainly would seem to be the case. It seems to me, though, that what has to happen before any real genuine change occurs is the system has to break down. How close do you think we are to something like that happening? Well, you alluded earlier to the dismal state of the ostensibly private sector, you know, huge banks' balance right. sheets. Right. And they have not liquidated the debt 
that they created during the credit bubble, you know, the tech bubble of 01 and the housing bubble through 06 or 07. Right. Um, the, the, the October, the, the events of fall of 08 have still not really begun to unravel us. Right. And so they haven't, they have not liquidated their bad debt and their balance sheets are fictions as a result. And when we look at the government side of things and the government balance sheet and the entitlement future, I mean, we're back to once again talking about having the Fed you know, buy up debt as sort of the buyer of last resort, we have uh, the entire world basically teetering on the balance of, of wondering whether it will accept any more of our debt, absent, let's say, raising interest rates precipitously, which would kill any, any, any even anemic growth here at home. Oh, for sure. So basically, what would it take to get the rest of the world to walk away from our paper quickly instead of walking away from our paper slowly. And I think what it would take would be some sort of precipitating event, like a war with Iran, for instance. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's in the cards? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I have small children, and, and I would hate to have a, a, a horrible event like a dollar collapse occur. The flip side is that, as a father, and, and for my own future, would I rather have a long, slow 20-year uh, uh, you know, unraveling of the bubble um, that, that left us in you know, bad stagflation for 20 years, or would I rather get it over quickly? I, I'm not certain, but I do know that, that whatever happens, um, let's hope it doesn't involve actual warfare. Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more there on that one. We don't need a, a long, drawn-out Chinese water torture, as you say, but on the other hand, who knows? I mean, it's, it's hard to predict these things. I do know one thing, and I do with all my heart believe that your boss, Ron Paul, is right in suggesting that a lot of the problems that we've had here, the terrorism, so-called terrorism that we've had here, is blowback from our being over there. I know he was laughed at by our ex-mayor here in New York City, Giuliani, in the debates, but, but if you people that really think about it and, and, and talk about it and realize and talk to foreigners, talk to people around the world who feel intimidated by the United States power, the United States military, even my friends in Canada feel intimidated by the United States and and they are you know they're ready to basically knuckle under if they have to they don't want to go to war who who needs war wouldn't it be better if we could just trade with our partners as George Washington wanted to do as your boss would like to do so any chances uh, I I just I just hope and pray that somehow we can get back to some sort of uh, understanding of the Constitution as it, as it was as our founding fathers laid it out and I know that's the dream of your of, uh, of Ron Paul and yourself and other libertarians who would like to see us return to those roots. Well, Jay, I don't think it really matters if one agrees or disagrees with Congressman Paul about the, the blowback concept. But the reality is that we can't afford the so-called war on terror as it's yeah. currently being waged any longer. I mean, we are spending essentially roughly $1 trillion a year on DOD and Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. Now, at some point, very soon, absent the ability to, to con- keep spending in a deficit mode, in other words, keep printing debt and having someone buy it, Yes. Um, absent that ability, at some point, Congress is going to have to start spending only what it brings in in tax revenues. Right. And when that day comes, I assure you that Americans will give up foreign wars before they'll give up Social Security benefits or Medicare payments to their doctor. Very, very interesting. Very interesting, Jeff. You, you definitely are right about that, I believe. And, and, of course, how we pay for that, printing money, QE2, they're calling it, 
Bernanke printing and buying her own debt as the Chinese walk away slowly at this point in time. But this is the reason that I own gold, the reason that our, uh, I think that the gold markets are on fire. That's the reason I think gold mining companies are extremely, uh, are doing very, very well. The share prices are going well. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We do have to move on to our next guest. Thanks so much, folks. Don't go away because we're coming right back with a very interesting company, Millrock Resources. Gregory Beischer will be with us to talk about his company and what he's doing in Alaska and in Arizona. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the high risk but high reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of america's next generation of mines a leader in this search is millrock resources based in anchorage millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the alaska frontier in arizona the target is giant hidden porphyry copper deposits financing this search are joint venture partners tech valet inmet kinross and altius major industry players together the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me Gregory Beischer. He is the president and CEO of Millrock Resources. Uh, Millrock trades uh, on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MRO. It trades on the United States uh, over-the-counter market 
under the symbol MLRKF, F is in Frank. Uh, there's 62.4 million shares outstanding and trading today, uh, I understand, at around 70 cents. Welcome back, Gregory, to uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, thanks very much, Jay. Great to be back on your show again. Well, it's great to have um, CEOs of winning companies back on our show. Uh, we much prefer those to the companies that aren't doing well. You seem to be doing quite well uh, with your uh, project generator model. Uh, maybe for the purpose, uh, for the sake of, of listeners that might be new to you and new to the concept of a project generator model, could you just explain briefly what that is? Sure. In a nutshell, Jay, we're, we're the idea people. We, we uh, dream up where the next mineral deposit could be. We do the research. We do the early stage reconnaissance exploration. But then we bring in a partner at an early stage to fund drilling on the projects. And so we're constantly coming up with new ideas, making deals with major companies and even junior company partners, and getting them to earn into the projects. Uh, to earn a majority interest, Millrock retains a minority interest in the in the project, but is a great way to reduce the risk in uh, what's an exceptionally risky business to begin with, and maximize our chances of discovering an ore body and therefore increasing our share uh, price uh, rapidly uh, on behalf of our shareholders. Well, indeed, and the big risk, the big risk that most people face in this industry, investors who buy junior mining companies that have to perpetually go back to the market to raise cash to put drill holes in the ground or do whatever else they have to do, explore and develop their properties, is dilution. And where you, uh, I think where this model has been so successful, and I might just add that Rick Rule, who was a guest on our show, oh, several months ago, and a very, very successful investor, told me that he does very well with project generators and not nearly as well with other kinds of uh, mining companies but for that very reason uh, you you reduce your uh, your risk that is the dilution you have other companies spending their money for the high risk drill holes that go into the ground but you have a number of very interesting uh, uh, very interesting joint venture partners and I might just add that when you look at the sort of the large companies that are your joint venture partners I'm talking about companies like Kinross tech inmet uh, Vale. These are super large, goal, uh, super large mining companies, and they're not looking for little one million ounce gold deposits. Generally, they're looking for something much bigger than that. So it seems to me that you've attracted some guys that that must think you have a chance for coming up big. And and here's the thing that makes it exciting: if you got 62.4 million shares outstanding, if you don't have to raise those numbers of shares very much at all in the next few years, and you hit on a one one major deposit. Your share price could go from seventy cents to who knows where. It depends on on how big the deposit is, what its value is, and all. But it's not unheard of to hear ten baggers occur in this space in the exploration business. As you mentioned, it's a very risky business, so risk and reward go together. When you have you're taking on more risk, you get the rewards, uh, and when you hit and you're fortunate, then you can see really upsize, uh, really large returns. So I'd like to ask if you just maybe comment on what you see as one or two of your major properties right now that you think are most exciting, and maybe just mention who your joint venture partners are on those projects. Right, sure. You know, uh, part of our strategy, Jay, is to uh, do agreements with major company partners. And uh, we we know what big companies look for. Uh, my partners and I come from big company backgrounds, and, and we've proven that we've been able to generate projects that are of interest to some of the bigger mining companies in the world. And so these include Valet and, and the Kinross, Inmet Tech. 
uh, amongst others. And so uh, I guess to touch on uh, some of the projects, uh, for example, uh, our Estelle Gold Project uh, in Alaska, uh, this is one that uh, bears some geologic similarities to the Donlin Creek deposit of Alaska, intrusion-related uh, gold-style mineralization. And uh, Tech uh, has provided us with funding to advance the project. We did that this past summer, refined some drill targets, and found some new ones, announced some pretty good uh, surface sampling results, a uh, pretty wide zone of gold mineralization, uh, almost uh, 30 meters wide with a uh, good grade, uh, over 9 grams per ton gold. Mm. So great, great indication at surface. And now it'll be up to tech. Uh, we'll, we'll drop a report on their desk uh, in the next few weeks so that'll start a clock ticking of 60 days in which they have to decide whether they're going to fund a major drilling program in 2011. I think they'll be inclined to do that based on the results this year. Oh. And so that's, this is sort of the model. Just uh, keep other companies spending money on our projects. Eventually, uh, we'll be successful and make discoveries. But one thing I would point out in the meantime is, you know, we're the operator of these projects, and we charge these major companies a management fee for doing work on on the project. Uh, it amounts to about 10% of every dollar that goes in the ground. Mm. So at this point, Millrock is actually a cash flow positive, pure exploration company. Wonderful. Uh, we, we get enough payments from our partners to actually cover off all our overhead. That's that's fantastic. So let's say let's say that uh, so within the next sixty days, tech has to determine has to make a decision as to whether they're going to stay on the project. And if they do, uh, what sort of a drill program might we expect? Is there a certain dollar amount they have to spend next year? Sure, the absolute minimum would be one point five million. We'll encourage them to spend a little more than that because it's a, a place that's not without challenges, it's steep mountainous terrain, and uh, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, you have to go in there with good budgets to drill, uh, you know, a, a minimum number of holes uh, to maximize uh, your chances of discovery. All right. What about uh, you have a Kinross as another well-known partner. What about the project they're involved in? Sure. Uh, they're uh, funding a, a project out on the Seward Peninsula of western Alaska. We completed drilling there <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, over the summer, uh, as well as uh, another project called Bluff, uh, where we have a, a modest uh, gold resource uh, already known. Uh, our partner there is a junior called Valdez Gold. And so we, we did a lot of drilling there over the summer at both projects, and we those uh, assay results have been rolling in for the lab, and we're be in a position to release those to the public uh, over the coming uh, couple of weeks. So your subscribers and listeners uh, should watch out for those results coming soon. Very good. So uh, this is this is really what drives these little companies. Uh, for those uh, listeners out there that may not f be familiar with the junior gold mining space, uh, these the companies can. We're not promising you anything, of course, but. Uh, uh, but the, it's the drill results. It's the truth machine, as it's called sometimes, that, that really uh, gets people interested and start to put money into this sector. So we'll be watching very carefully. InMet is another joint venture partner that is, is, is a good-sized company. Now, they may be interested more in, uh, in the base metals, and you do have copper projects in Arizona. Is that, is that right? Sure. These are uh, several projects uh, which are copper porphyry-style mineralization. But, of course, uh, uh, although I feel really good about the economics of copper going forward in the coming decades, uh, uh, giant copper deposits are actually a big source of all the gold that's produced in the world as well as a byproduct. So uh, these are uh, good things to be looking for. They're big company-style deposits, gigantic uh, open-pit-style mines is, is how they would be mined. 
Uh, we're uh, in the early exploration phases on, on all three projects. Inmet's funding two of them, uh, Valet, the Brazilian giants, funding the other one. <clears throat> and uh, we've completed sort of the initial round. Uh, we've uh, done the, some geophysical surveys in combination with data that we already owned uh, regarding the projects. We've actually developed some really compelling drill targets, and both our partners are, are very keen for us to drill these targets right away. And so we're actually ramping up our operations in Arizona. We'll be have a drill turning by November 1st, and uh, if we can pull it off, we'll, we'll have uh, two or three drills turning by the start of December. So our goal of having a fully sustainable uh, exploration company that is operating year-round, in fact, has a drill turning year-round, constantly making news for our shareholders, uh, is almost realized at this point. That's very important, too, because there is, uh, there's at least one company on my list that's uh, involved in Alaska, and they, uh, they have you know three or four months of the year that they can do their exploration work, and the rest of the time they have nothing going, and it's sort of you know the the shares don't trade and there's not much interest in it so you in Alaska are you able to uh, i guess you're probably going to be shutting down pretty soon now yeah, for the early stage exploration, it makes most sense to stick to the summer months. If we have uh, discovered a deposit and are delineating it, certainly we can operate on a year-round basis. But for now, in the early stages, it just makes sense to uh, keep the cost low, uh, explore uh, Alaska in the summer, Arizona in the winter. You have another joint venture partner, Altius, I believe. Yes. Uh, Altius is uh, a strategic partner, and uh, they are arguably the most uh, successful project generator business model company ever. They're a major shareholder of our company, owning about 17%. We are following the business model as absolutely rigorously as they do and have done. Uh, they're a company that's uh, uh, now worth uh, in excess of $450 million and, uh, like us, started from scratch uh, at a share price of uh, around $0.25 cents a share. And so we're uh, very thankful that they're investors. They've given us money uh, two years ago when it was impossible to raise money elsewhere. Uh, and they are uh, helping guide us. In fact, uh, one of their uh, founders, uh, who's recently retired from Altius, Roland Butler, joined uh, Millrock's board uh, some months ago and is providing us with great direction and advice. But they're a, a terrific a strategic partner to have. Well, that's uh, very good to know. They um, they can provide, you know, bring on some of that success, that formula for you guys. And obviously, the fact that they were willing to come into the market at a time when no one else would uh, speaks of their confidence in uh, in your management team and its ability to pick out some good projects. Else, they would not have been putting their money there. I'm sure. Um, how is your funding situation now? Do you have some money in the till yet that can carry you through? Yeah, I feel like we're, uh, we've got a really great foundation built now. We, we've got approximately $4 million in our, our bank account. We're, we're expending uh, uh, you know, less than uh, half a million dollars of our own money each year. And so uh, even if there was another big downturn to the economy in this coming year, we're, we're well prepared to weather that storm and, uh, and come out uh, as a, a successful explorer at, at the opposite end. So. I feel quite good about our financial position, and uh, we're uh, overall just the foundation of the company we've built. We're really poised now for success. Uh, we're going to be doing an awful lot of drilling over the, the coming year and uh, actually have a fair bit of drilling results to report in the coming month. Okay, well, we certainly uh, wish you well, and we want to track your, uh, your progress. If you could tell our listeners what is your website so they can keep track of what's, what you're doing. 
sure. It's just www.millrockresources.com. Just Google Millrock and you'll find us. Millrock Resources. Thank you so much, Gregory, for being with us. Uh, we, uh, I certainly will keep track of you. Uh, your company is a recommendation in my newsletter. And uh, I want to thank you also for being a sponsor of this show uh, and wish you the very best. So uh, until the next time, uh, goodbye. And, uh, folks, don't go away, though. I'm going to be back with some closing thoughts on this week's markets and the, and the discussion that we've had so far today. So don't go away. I'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk visit metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times my partner roger wiegand is very often with me uh for the closing segments and for the wrap-up he's not with me today so i'm flying solo uh, I want to say, though, that I think that we are in extraordinarily exciting times uh, for the gold uh, sector, for sure. I think uh, one of the things that I'm focused on most right now is this uh, currency war situation. Uh, we talked to Andre about the currency wars a little earlier and about the prospects for gold to play some role in a, in a global monetary system. I think that's a very realistic uh, possibility. How soon, I don't know. I didn't think it would be realistic a few years back, but as I see the way things are taking shape as I see China requiring more uh, or making it possible and encouraging their citizens to buy gold. The, 
country itself is now the largest gold producer in the world. And it's not exporting it. It's keeping it for itself. Something is going on here, and it has to do with geopolitical power uh, uh, struggles that are going on. The currency war thing is very interesting to me. It looks very much like everything that I read about in the 1930s with all the countries trying to get an advantage. The domestic economies being extremely weak. They cannot export uh, or they, they can't sell things internally, so countries are trying to sell externally, but everybody's trying to sell externally to export, and, and you can't just, it just doesn't work. And so we are on a collision course, I believe, in the global economy. It's just a matter of time before things, uh, before we see some major changes taking place. Now, I'm old enough to have lived through the Bretton Woods breakdown, 1971. I was a young man, remember very well. A reading about it, August 15, 1971, when Nixon took us off the international gold standard unilaterally, the United States defaulted on this obligation to pay other nations gold uh, in exchange for paper. I think we're very close to a major breakdown and then some sort of a restructuring of the global financial community, whether it's a year or two years or six months, I don't know, but something has got to give, that's for sure, because we are on a collision course. You can't have everybody trying to do the same thing, export, cheapen their currency, and sort of cheat on their neighbors by, by cheapening their currency. So uh, uh, times are going to be changing, but all of this, I believe, continues to be extremely bullish for gold. All the nations are debasing their currency. It's not that gold is going up in value. It's that the currencies are losing value. If you want to retain your wealth, don't hold paper money. That's the message. Uh, I might mention in last week's newsletter, uh, there were a couple of companies that I highlighted. One is a uh, happens to be uh, a sponsor for this uh, for this show, Palangio Exploration. We're going to be talking to Palangio, uh, symbol PGXPF on the uh, over-the-counter exchange here in the U.S. PX on the Toronto exchange. They are uh, having some very very good. Uh, results on their Manfo property as they're exploring and developing that. Another company that I like an awful lot uh, is Dynacor Gold Mines, and this is a company that's making nice profits with custom milling in Peru, but they have some really, really interesting uh, and I think world-class potential exploration projects there as well. One is a high-grade underground mine, and one is a, 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 a copper gold porphyry. Uh, or bulk mineable target. And still, we did talk about sand gold in our newsletter this week. Sand gold's share price has been somewhat disappointing. Uh, however, the fundamentals for that company do look good, in my view, over the longer term. Of course, I talk in length about these, uh, about these companies in my newsletter. If you'd like to try that, you can uh, get a trial subscription for, uh, for $49, actually $59 for three months. You can try Chen Lin's uh, service for $39 uh, as well for one month, or Roger Wiegand's for 49 for one month. Uh, call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 for more information or to sign up for those newsletters, or you can go to our website at miningstocks.com. Next week, we're going to have a very, very interesting guest. Uh, he's been with us once before. His name is Ian McDonald. He is a senior gold market analyst uh, who has known, uh, knows as much as anybody alive, I dare say, about the gold markets, uh, the shadowy nature of the gold markets, what nations are doing. He'll have some very well-informed uh, information to share with you next week on the gold markets and where the gold markets are headed. So you won't want to miss Ian McDonald next week. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America, again, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. All those folks have made this show logistically possible, and I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making this the number one show on the Voice America 
uh, business channel. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is in-